right, well, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and um, just later on, I'm going to be asking you to turn to Zechariah 3, which is one of those books where if you've never looked for, it might take you a while, so uh, just giving you a heads up so you could put your finger there if you want. It'll also be projected up behind me, and you could follow along that way. So we're going to be getting into a really theological passage this morning, and one of the things that I've realized over the years is that people get intimidated by big-time theological concepts, and, and they psych themselves out when they're approaching it before they even get to it because they've already convinced themselves, hey, I don't understand that stuff. That stuff is over my head. And out of all the doctrines where this is the case, I've never seen the one that overwhelms people more than the doctrine that's discussed today in our text in 1 John chapter 2, the doctrine of propitiation. Um, even the word has multiple syllables in it, right? So therefore, it must be intimidating. So let me hear you guys say propitiation. propitiation. All right, so you've got the word down already. The word itself is not intimidating. Now we're going to define it, and we're going to spend the message looking into what it means, but when you get to something intimidating, there's a couple of different things you could do. You could just gloss over it, um, or you can dive right into it and go headlong at it. We're going to take the latter approach. Uh, we have three goals that we want to accomplish here in defining propitiation. Got a slide for that. The first is to show you that this doctrine is of profound importance to the Christian life. So you need to know this. The second is to show you that it's surprisingly simple to understand, so you can know this. And the third is that it's very practical to your everyday life, so it's beneficial for you to know this. And a, and a way that I can kind of prove that it's practical um, and importance right off of the bat is most people love the truth that we preached on from last week, from 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us for all unrighteousness. So the truth of the do-over that we looked at. I've had so much communication back and forth with people from the body this week about that truth. People love the truth of, of the cleansing grace that is ours in Christ, the truth of being washed and made anew and clean and having a fresh start and knowing that Christ said it is finished. And when he said it is finished, that he meant it is actually finished. But let's think through the questions that I've asked so far to set up these messages in this series, The Guide to the Christian Life. The first week I asked if you've had a meaningful encounter with Jesus. The second week we asked if you've ever felt the need for a do-over, a fresh start with Jesus. And this week builds on those two concepts. I kept saying last week that God never gets tired of you coming over and over and over and over to him and asking him for a do-over. So the question we're going to ask today is, how do you know that God never gets sick of you coming to him struggling with the same stuff over and over? How do you know he doesn't look at it when you come and say, Jesus, it's me again, messed up, same way, same situation, here I am. And then he's like, sure, I'm happy to forgive you. And then you come again, sure, I'm happy to forgive you. And then you come again, and you know, he's not like, are you kidding me? Again? The same thing, huh? And then you come again, oh, surprise, surprise, it's you again. And then you come again, come on already. Like seriously, five times? 
You can't get this? How do you know that he doesn't look at you like that? How can you be theologically sure if you do not find things like knowing the doctrine of propitiation as something important for Christian life and practice? Do you even know that? I talk to people all the time that struggle with feeling defeated. Have you ever been there where you don't even want to bother confessing the same thing again? Because it's been a million times and you've had a hard time convincing yourself that there's not going to be a million and first right around the corner. Whether you knew it or not, every time you get back up, off the mat and dust yourself off and go back into the presence of God and lean into Jesus, bruised and battered, but willing, you are becoming a theologian on the doctrine of propitiation. So my hope is that when you're leaving here this morning, you'll have a deeper understanding of the beautiful reality that is yours in Christ Jesus and that it would make the gospel of God's grace even more illustrious to you and give you another weapon to be able to combat sin and the lies of the enemy and to live a life in righteousness. So I love the tenderness that he starts out our passage with. 1 John 2.1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So I, He starts off by addressing this crowd as little children. And that's really important. He's establishing a relationship with these people that he's talking to. He's about to drop a really heavy truth bomb on these guys. He tells them that he's writing to them so that you would not sin. Think about those words. That's a hard one to receive. Imagine if I started off my sermon like that. Brothers and sisters, I'm here preaching today so that you would not sin. Um, It's a lot easier, though, to receive a hard word like this within the context of relationship. If you don't establish relationship with the people that you're sharing truth with, then they don't feel like people. They feel like projects when you start to share that truth. And if you see people as projects, I promise you they will know it. They can smell that a mile away, and people are sick of it. They don't like feeling like that. It is not authentic. They don't find it as loving. They don't tend to like it. They don't want to be another notch on your Christian belt so that you could be able to get some sort of credit that you don't even need to be trying to earn because we're going to see it's already yours in Christ. And that's so far from John's attitude. He's writing to his little Children, He has relationship with these people. Friends, a little tangent, but he's going to deliver a tough word, but I find that a tough word is always delivered best within the context of a tender relationship and with a spirit of gentleness as it's brought forth. Churches are so full of people that are high on truth and low on the spirit. If you don't believe me, Go pick any one of your favorite sermons you've ever listened to and go read the YouTube comment section on it, on on YouTube. And you'll see just the most heinous trolls of people that you wonder, like, where do you even come from? Like, what monster bred people like you? And, and, And they hurt people because they know the truth. 
They know it well enough to be able to use it as a club and to wield it as a weapon, but they don't have the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, to be able to use it in the context of gentleness and in a spirit of relationship. And as a father, John is tenderly writing to his little children. He's saying, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. When you see his heart in what he's writing to you, you immediately start to get what he's doing. Look, what, what kind of parent would not say these same words to your own child? Honey, I'm sharing this with you so that you would not sin. Um, not because your sin makes my life inconvenient. It does. You know that when your kids sin, it makes your life inconvenient. But that's, that's not the heart of coming at it, is it? At least it shouldn't be but because of the wreckage that it's going to cause in your life if you continue to follow down this path. And, and I, I want to make this super clear. When he's writing this, this is not Christianese that he's speaking to you. This is an honest expectation that John has. It's not like, look, I'm going to get the tough part out of the way because Jesus is twisting my arm and making me say it. So I know this is nuts, but I'm writing you that you may not say, okay, now on to the other stuff. Um, no, um, he's not just trying to push this under the rug, get it out of the way so he could share other truth. It's written with the honest expectation that by the power of the gospel that you believed in, the power of the spirit that indwells you, and the power of God's word that has been given to you, that you would wage war against sin, that you would understand that no temptation has seized you but that which is common to man, and whenever tempted, he will provide a way out. Look, God expects for you to wage war against sin. God does not expect every time sin comes into your life for you to turtle up and just say, well, you know, I'm going to sin anyway, so I might as well. Um, he expects you with all of the might that he has by, given to you, not by your power, not by your, not by your might, but by his spirit. He expects that you will wage war against sin. And brothers and sisters, that's not legalism. That's holiness. There's such a difference. It's not legalistic to say you should be living a life that hates sin and loves righteousness. Paul told us in Romans 6 that we're dead to sin, but we're alive to righteousness in Christ Jesus. It's just being honest with who you are now in this divine transaction that we've received in Jesus. And he tells you, man, if you're right Hand causes you to stumble, hate your sin enough to cut it off, metaphorically. Um, don't want to see a bunch of handless people here. If, you're, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. I can't tell you how many people I've sat with that tell me, man, uh, here I am struggling with looking at stuff on the internet again that I shouldn't have been looking at. I'm like, look, it says if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. You could at least, uh, you're not supposed to pluck out your eye, but you could at least extend that to like maybe just, Take the browser off your phone if you're struggling that much. It has to at least mean that much if it's going to mean anything. Well, I can't do that. I have to be able to access uh, Yahoo Sports at any time during the day oh, and, and sin too. Um, don't just bellyache about being defeated. Wage war against your sin. He's not writing expecting you to be sinless, but that you would have 
a hatred of sin. I remember going down to Florida and hearing Chan Kilgore, one of my favorite preachers, preach. And it was right after the, um, the Haiti earthquake. And he was in his office just watching the devastation. And he had the news on in the corner of his office. And, and his 11-year-old daughter walked into his office as he was studying and just sat there with her mouth agape. If you remember the footage from that earthquake, it was some of the most jarring footage that you've ever seen. You are actually watching people dying in real time on the footage. It should jar you. And the thing that really moved him was that it didn't jar him at all. He was just sitting there with it on in the background noise and studying like he would as if he was watching anything else, um, a stock market report or the um, sports center. And his daughter was sobbing, an uncontrollable sobbing as she sat there and watched this and said, Daddy, why would God let this happen? And he turned to her and said, Honey, this is the effects of sin on the earth. And he said that she just sat there weeping, saying, well, then, Daddy, I hate sin. And he said he sat there weeping, but for a different reason. And he said, when was the last time that I hated sin with the ferocity that my daughter hates sin right now? And as I sat there listening to him, I was just cut to the heart, wondering, do I have that intense hatred of sin, or have I just accepted it as being a part of the way that I'm going to live my life? He's writing to you expecting that you would have hatred of your sin. But does that accurately describe your attitudes? And even though it's an honest expectation, it can be a bit confusing, right? Because he just told you in verses 8 and 10 of the previous chapter that if you say that you don't sin, you're a liar. And the truth's not in you. And then he starts this chapter with him writing to you that you would not sin. Um, So he's saying you can't claim that you're sinless, but he's saying be honest with yourself. Be honest about your sin. And he's about to let you in on a little secret that even when we do sin, there's somebody that comes in and mops up your mess. And he sort of leaves it at attention here for a minute, and I'm fine to do that as well. In one sense, he's trying to equip you so that you would not sin and you would live a life in righteousness. Like when I tell my kids, you don't ever have to lie. But in another sense, he realizes that he has just asked the impossible of you, so he provides a solution in the next verse. Like when you catch your kids in a lie that you just told to never lie, and now you need to do some parenting. And you need to be able to say, how does the gospel impact the way that I shepherd my children and shepherd their hearts? So it could be so quick to jump to solutions that... We don't let the gravity of statements like this really sink in. Well, that's obviously not going to happen. I'm not going to not sin. So let's just move on to something else. I want every person to know verse 1 pertains to you if you're in Christ. Little children, I'm writing to you that you would not sin. One thing that I love about Reformed Christianity is we have a strong sense of our own depravity, sometimes an over-actualized understanding of our own depravity. I mean, it's the leadoff hitter. When we tell people the tulip, it is the leadoff hitter in our doctrine for crying out loud. But I, I think that it can come to over-sensualizing our sin, like it's a celebration 
of our own depravity. I frequently hear people say something like this. In an effort, I'm sure they're trying to sound humble and dependent on the grace of God, but they say things like, I'm so grateful for the grace of God because, man, I can't go five minutes without sinning. And I'm like, that's a problem, dude. Like, you make some changes if you can't go five minutes without sinning. I know you're just trying to be humble, but I hope you're overstating it. Uh, or here's my favorite. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this Christian colloquialism. I sin before I even get out of the bed in the morning. What the heck are you doing? Get a new bedroom. <laughs> like, make some changes to your routine. I, I'm pretty honest about my shortcomings, but if you're sinning every single day before your feet even hit the floor, then change the time you set your alarm clock or something. And, and I'm not trying to pick on the doctrine of total depravity here. It's one of the linchpins that hold our faith together. G.K. Chesterton said that when trying to prove to people the validity of the Bible that the only doctrine that he does not feel the need to defend in any way is the doctrine of total depravity because one only needs to look at a newborn baby to be able to see that it was ingrained into our souls from birth and in sin my mother did conceive me. Um, Paul lived with a full view of his own depravity. Check this, uh, these words out in Romans 7.24. You might even know them. Oh, wretched sinner that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? He's saying, I can't escape this. I wear this sin suit with me to bed. When I go to bed, I wake up with it. I was born in it. I have this sin suit that encompasses me. But you know what? He also lived in few, full view of the cross. Look at verse 25. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. So that kind of led him to the recipe for dealing with condemnation. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the very next verse after that one. So John tells us not to sin, but then he goes on to give us some good news in this. He says, when you do sin, look at this. I am writing to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when you sin, we have an advocate. So when we sin, which we're told not to do, in the previous verse, the one who told us not to do it and is the one whom which we have just sinned against stands up for you on your behalf. That's the gospel. Let me just let that marinate for a minute. We're told not to sin. And when you do sin, the one who told you not to sin and the one whom you have just sinned against now rises up to stand up for you on your behalf. We're going to see in verse 2 that he takes it even a step further. But I want to get into this word advocate for a second because it is one of the neatest words that you could hear about Christ. Let me hear you say advocate. All right. The Greek word for advocate is so cool. It means one who comes alongside of. So when we sin, we have someone who comes alongside of us in the midst of that sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he's called in verse 1. Do you let that sink in? This means when you decided to wage war against Christ, he's the one who's being transgressed against. And then he ever lives to make intercession for you in the midst of being transgressed against. Do you ever just think 
of that when you're in the pit of your own struggles and you're condemning yourself because you can't get out. That in this struggle, I have an advocate and he lives to come alongside of me in the midst of my junk. Please, you've got to get this. To understand the gospel, to understand gospel centrality, to understand how the gospel motivates us to live a life of holiness, you have to understand the advocation of Christ and you have to understand the doctrine of, propiti- of propitiation. He's not saying that he waits until you get out of your junk to start advocating for you either. He doesn't have a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps theology. It's you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So he jumped down in the pit next to you and started advocating for you when you were in the midst of the pit. It's in your sin While you were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. So what does it mean for Jesus Christ, the righteous, to advocate to the Father? It means that when you're in your junk, check this out, that this should move your heart. When you're in the midst of your junk, he turns to the Father and says, that's my boy right there. That's, that's my little girl right there. I chose him before the foundation of the world, knowing that he was going to do this junk right here, and I still chose him. I placed them in my body when I hung on the cross, and I did it willfully and joyfully. Um, and that foolishness that you see them struggling with, when I said it, it's finished, I meant it's finished because that's what I died for. That's what it means for him to advocate or to come alongside of. That's what we mean when we sing the words, your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon the earth, speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. What can wash away our sins? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us pure as snow? Welcomed as the what? Friends of God, because he's advocated for you. Nothing but your blood, nothing but your blood, King Jesus. Get this. If you get nothing else, walk out of here with this. Put it as a placard on your refrigerator. His blood always speaks louder than your sin. Get that, man. That, there's no cooler reality out there. His blood always speaks louder than your sin. Christ as your advocate means that when you're a knucklehead, he's saying, that little girl right there, she's mine. That little sinning knucklehead right there, that is my boy. What kind of love and grace is this? It's scandalous. You know, when Grace or Elijah or Calvin are acting up, I always say something to the effect of, hey, Marcy, um, your kids are being a couple of little depraved sinners again. (laughs) So is your kids in that instance, right? But Jesus is speaking blood over that sin. And you know what he's saying? Unlike my silly example, when you're acting up, he's nudging the father and saying, hey, my kid is acting up again, and I paid for that. It's, it's finished. And he still advocates for you and is proud to say that that's my kid. We get that from Romans 4 and 5. He didn't just say that you have a ceasefire as long as you keep doing what's right. It says we have peace with God through Christ who justified us. It's not just a ceasefire. It's peace with him because you have an advocate. And you know what this passage not, does not call Jesus? Another A word. He doesn't call him the accuser. 
I talk to so many people who feel like Jesus is out there to accuse them when they're in the midst of their sin. Look, Jesus doesn't want to accuse you. He wants to acquit you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, imagine going to court and knowing that both the prosecutor and the defense attorney are both arguing on your behalf. That's what's going on in the celestial courtroom of this passage. Satan's the accuser. Jesus is the advocate. And we make Jesus out to be the accuser. You are ascribing to him something that is only ascribed to Satan in the scriptures. The best picture that I've ever seen of this in the whole Bible is in Zechariah 3. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand that I've plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, filthy, And the Lord said, remove those filthy garments from him. So picture yourself being the one who's standing there in the midst of your filthiness saying, Lord, here I am. It's me again. And then the accusations start flying. And there's Jesus standing arm in arm with you saying, how dare you, Satan? This is my kid. And I paid for that already. And I've taken those filthy garments. You stand acquitted. And there is no accusation to be given any longer. The guide to the Christian life to really understand the truth is is Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And I'm going to go back and show you the answer to the question that we started with as I begin to wrap up. The reason that we can continue to go with Jesus with our sin time after time after time after time after time and know that he will always receive us with joy and love and in grace and never get sick of us is because of verse 2. There would be no 1 John 1, 9 if there was not 1 John 2, 2. I want to make that really, really clear to you guys. So it says, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. All right, so propitiation. Um, What is it, and why is it so critical to understanding the gospel? I actually have it defined up behind me for anybody who's ever been looking at that word and saying, what does that mean when when I come across that? It comes from the Greek term helosmos, which means the removal of wrath or punishment by offering of a gift. So propitiation is simply that, that Jesus took the wrath of the Father that he had against us, that it speaks about in Ephesians 2.3, and that we deserved, and he bore the entirety of that wrath and replaced our standing of wrath with his standing of righteousness. Let me repeat that. Jesus took the wrath of the Father that he had against us, and that we deserved and bore the entirety of that wrath and replaced our standing of wrath with Christ's standing of righteousness. You want to understand the doctrine of propitiation in a way that you can memorize and leave here today and have a good grasp on it? I'll give you one song lyric that is a lot easier to remember than that. Be to sin a double cure, free from wrath, and make me pure. That's propitiation. We're singing about. Also later in that song, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. So there is no wrath left to be poured out on the believer. 
Even if you never use these terms, it's important for you to understand the difference between expiation and propitiation. So expiation just means that he would have removed and taken away your guilt. Propitiation means that he gave you a righteous standing in the place where there formerly was a guilty one. So going back to our Zechariah example that I just gave you, we have not only been declared not guilty and freed from wrath, we now have his favor. So it's like if we came before his throne, like you see Joshua doing in that passage, and you're clothed in filthy garments, and the filthy garments are supposed to be a picture of your sin, and then Christ says, you know what, I'm going to take those filthy garments, but he does something awesome. He's standing over here in vestments of pure righteousness on the merit of the perfect sinless life that he lived when he went to the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, and he then takes off those pure vestments of righteousness, and as you stand over here in your filthiness, he takes your filthiness, he clothes you in his righteousness so that he can say, Satan, how could you even accuse him? I don't even see unrighteousness anymore. That's my boy right there. He is covered in the righteousness of God. That's almost all of propitiation, but there's one more piece that makes it even more beautiful. Then he takes that, and what he does is he takes your filthy garments, and he puts them on himself in this divine exchange, and he pays for it completely, and when he atoned for you on the cross, it was gone, never to pick back up again. That's propitiation. Can you see the importance of that? If you are in Christ, you stand fully approved. So if you want practical application for propitiation, you don't have to fight for approval that you already have. And I know that there's some rabid Calvinists here that are wondering, are you going to get into the extent of the atonement? Um, I'm going to next week. Um, I, I want to get into um, just some practical application as we close, but I will say to you, if you can tell me where this passage talks about atonement, then I'll spend more time defining it uh, next week, because propitiation and atonement have a lot of overlap, but they are not synonyms. But back to the practical application as we close, if you are in Christ, you stand fully approved. So let me ask you a couple questions. Do you hate your sin? Has the Spirit moved you to where he just said, I've tasted the good things of the world to come. I've tasted the righteousness that's mine in Christ, and I hate my sin. It's not that I need to have some kind of law to be able to free me from my sin. My law exposed my sin, and it made me fly to Jesus to be able to get an alien righteousness that is not of myself. And now I've learned to hate my sin, and I'm in love with Christ. Number two is... Where are you living like you still need to fight for approval? If you're in Christ, you've been approved by Christ. And you stand approved in Christ. And you will be approved in Christ. So why fight for approval that has already been granted? And the last is you can always come to him. 1 John 1, 9 always applies. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That do-over is yours because of the propitiation of your advocate that was purchased when he said it is finished. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you for the amazing doctrine of propitiation. Thank you for atoning for the sins of the believer. Thank you, Lord, that it's covered. Lord, that we've been saved from wrath. Lord, that we have been granted a righteousness not of ourselves, that even when our practical righteousness falters, our positional righteousness in Christ stands firm, and we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, We're going to take communion now.